Good morning, Forest Park. Great to see you guys today. If you know much about the Enneagram, then you know what I mean when I say I'm a five. I am a collector of information. I love books, documentaries, interviews, history, science, philosophy. I just love facts. For most situations, I go in prepared. Sometimes I go in overly prepared because I detest surprises. Give me the details, the inside scoop, the truth. I want to be ready. I I never want to be caught off guard. And this personality has a lot of strengths. Obviously, you know, you read a lot, you collect a lot of information, you know a lot of things, you know, you enjoy trivia, you kind of file away, you know, different stuff that you're learning. So it has some strengths, but it also has some weaknesses. In fact, I have to be very careful. Those of us who are kind of like that, we got to be careful because we fives spend so much time studying, learning, and collecting, we often neglect doing We replace showing compassion with knowing compassion, serving people with teaching people, loving with learning. I can provide you 10 reasons why it's important to help people, but I can't give you three stories of when I recently helped someone. Think about that. And I fear this is not only true for us fives, but this is a legitimate criticism of the entire modern church. We invest enormous resources constructing buildings rather than housing the homeless. We successfully collect money but fail to distribute it well. We write beautiful songs about love but act ugly when it comes time to do it. We write lots of books but few grants. We too often care about kids with brown and black skin across the ocean but neglect them here at home. And I wish I could say, you know what, that's not me. I'm talking about other people. But if I said that, I'd be lying. I am a professional Christian. And professional Christians aren't well known for being Christ-like people. Do you have any idea how many sermons I've preached over my 21 years here about love? Do you have any idea how many sermons I've preached about humility or compassion or the value of serving one another? probably more than 200 here at Forest Park alone. And I've taken hundreds of people through classes and discipleship programs and mission outreach trips. And I've met one-on-one in my office to discuss behaviors and addictions and all kinds of issues going on in the lives. And I've given scriptures and ideas and principles and processes and systems and all the different things to help people. And some of the people who said, amen, the loudest, and bought all the CDs and told me how good it was and how much they were changing and don't look much like Jesus today. You know, we, we church people in the USA are educated way beyond our practice. This is why Jesus called out many of the religious professionals of his day. Let's listen to this. Listen to the scathing words of Jesus. Matthew 23, 15, Jesus said, some of us professionals would travel around the world to make one person a convert. And then we would transform. We would disciple that person into being twice as evil and wicked as we are. Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine having those words fall from the lips of Jesus and you're standing around listening to that and you're one of the religious people of his day? Matthew 23, 23, he says, how terrible will it be for you legal experts and Pharisees, there I am, Hypocrites, you give to God a tenth 
of mint, dill, and cumin, but you forget about the more important subjects of law, justice, peace, and faith. Matthew 23, 27, Jesus called some of the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. You know what that means? They were tombs painted white to look clean, but on the inside were rotting corpses. Much of the church today cares more about image than integrity, more about successes than shepherding, more about politics than people, more about rights than responsibilities, more about providing just enough than we do about providing justice. And the reason many people are walking away from church today in droves, in herds, is because it's a great reckoning. The church has tilted and a lot of people are falling off. And this is nothing new. I mean, religious people have justified lack of service, lack of acceptance, lack of unity, lack of justice, and lack of love for years. In fact, religious people have become extremely skilled at finding and using loopholes. Loopholes. And typically, loopholes become neck holes by which we hang ourselves. And that's what we've done so many times. And this is so clear in the story Jesus tells that we're going to walk through today. I want you to watch this. Jesus tells a story that just exposes all of this in a way that you don't even see it coming. I mean, you think you understand what's going on, and he slips in the back door, and you're like, wow, I did not foresee that. This comes from Luke chapter 10. Just watch this as I set this up for you. Luke 10, beginning at verse 25, it says, a legal expert, that's me. Not that I'm an expert, but in that particular day, I'd be considered a professional, you know, a legal expert. I get it. I understand it. I've studied it. A legal expert stood up, and why did he stand up? To test Jesus. And he says, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And the legal expert, a lawyer, knew the law of Moses well. He was considered an expert. That's what it says. He's a legal expert. People would schedule time with him to settle a dispute about the law. He knew it inside and out. He had memorized it. He had studied it from his childhood. This guy knew the answer before he even asked Jesus, but he was trying to see whether Jesus knew the law or at least whether Jesus uh, understood the law as he did. So the lawyer asked Jesus a loaded question. He's not asking Jesus because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking Jesus to test him to see whether or not they're on the same page. So he asks him a loaded question. What must I do to inherit or to gain eternal life? Here he knows the answer. But he wants to stretch this out with Jesus. Is he hope, he's hopeful that he will trick Jesus into saying something he might use to find a contradiction and trip Jesus up and use it against him at a later time. This is not coming from a heart of integrity. This is coming from a, a motive of trying to trick Jesus, confuse Jesus, and confuse the audience around Jesus that day. And Jesus doesn't fall for the trick. Instead, he asked the man what he thinks. Jesus replied, all right, lawyer, let me ask you a question. What's written in the law? You know the law. You've studied the law. You've been around the law your whole life. You've memorized it. You tell me what is written in the law. How do you interpret it? 
Remember last week when I told you that when we read scripture, it's actually reading us. Because we find in the Bible who we are. We see our reflection there. We can actually find racism in the Bible, hatred in the Bible, judgmentalism in the Bible. Who we are, we approach the Bible with our own heart, our own motives, and we often find in the Bible what we want to find in the Bible. While we're reading it, it is reading us. It reflects back to us who we are. So this man is using the law to justify his own behaviors. And ask Jesus a question, tell me what, how much I, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus turns the table on the lawyer. Rather than showing all of his cards, Jesus' cards, Jesus calls the man's hand and asks him to show his cards. But, and this is critical, Jesus did not only ask the man to state what's in the law, but to interpret what's in the law. Notice, Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? In other words, it's not just enough for you to know the right answer. I want to know whether or not you can take the right answer and apply it to your life. So you've asked me a question. I ask you two questions. Tell me, you, what do you read in the law and how do you interpret it? And the lawyer responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, this is a perfect answer. This is the heart of the law. This guy knew the law. The lawyer combines Deuteronomy 6 with, Deuteronomy, with Leviticus 19. He pulls in these two verses and makes it one. He knows the law so well, he can flip it. He can turn it upside down. He can blend it together. This guy is an expert in the law, and he gives the perfect answer. So the man could not have answered the first part of Jesus' question in a more correct way. But notice... He did not answer the latter part of the question. How do you interpret it? Or better yet, how do you apply it? Listen to me very carefully, okay? This is where the modern church is today. We have a lot of answers, correct answers, but little to no clue how to apply those answers to the real world around us. And Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Watch this. Do this and you will live. Now, the lawyer could have simply said, thank you. That's exactly what I will do. You're right. You know, you and I are on the same page. I get it. And the incident probably would have never been recorded in Scripture. But the man wasn't after the answer to his first question. That was merely a front to get to the real question the man had for Jesus. Folks, sometimes when people ask you a question, that's not really the question that they want to ask you, there's a question behind the question, but they use the question to set you up. You ever been there? I've been in this a long time as a pastor. A lot of times people come up to me and they ask me a question. That's not really what they want to know. They have a question behind their question, and I'm getting better and better and better at detecting the question behind the question. Everybody know what I'm talking about? The question a lot of us have too, same question. This man has. I call it the loophole question. The lawyer essentially says to Jesus, wait a minute. Uh, you're saying that all I have to do is inherit, to inherit eternal life is to love God and love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus said, that's right. Do this and you will live. And the man messes up. 
He could have just said, thank you. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go off and love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you very much, Jesus. You and I are together in this. And uh, that would have been it. But the man messes up. Watch this. The legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. He wanted to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, you've got to hear this the way it sounded when he said it. So let me, let me put this in a context that we might all understand better. Imagine a man walks up to Jesus and says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, uh, what is the secret to a long and happy marriage? And Jesus responds, Well, what did you promise your wife at the beginning whenever you married her? I promised I would love her and I'd be faithful to her for our whole life. Wonderful. Then go and do that and you will enjoy a long and happy marriage. And then the man says, um, one, more, one more question, Jesus. Just, just one more question before I go. Yes, what? What exactly do you mean by faithful? If someone said that and you watched that conversation take place, what would that question say about the man? Uh, can you define for me what you mean by being faithful to her our whole life? What, what do you mean by love? The lawyer is asking Jesus, what do you mean? Wait, hang on a second. Okay, love my neighbors. So I get it, I get it. I've studied it. I've memorized it. I've learned that since childhood. But I want to know from you, what do you mean by neighbor? In other words, who is not my neighbor? How far do I have to go to be counted or, or how far must I go to be counted as loving my neighbor? Please tell me that what I'm already doing, who I'm already loving, is good enough. I want to know the boundary markers behind, around neighbor, and I want to make sure that I fit inside those boundary markers. Please tell me that the people I'm loving, the people I'm choosing to love, all fits within my understanding of neighbor. Surely there have got to be limits to this loving my neighbor command, right? That's what he's saying. Trying to justify himself, he asks Who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer the lawyer directly. Instead, he tells him a story. And it blows everybody's mind. Watch this. Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this sets the scene. Jesus tells us nothing about the man on a journey. He, he could be rich, he could be poor, he could be kind, mean, generous, greedy, slave-free, priest, layperson. We do not know who this man is who is on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho because the man doesn't matter. The man is no one and everyone. He's just a human, a person on his way to do what persons do. He's just on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody in the audience understands this path from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a road that's about 18 miles long. It's very rocky, and it descends from a 2,500 uh, feet above sea level down to about 825 above sea level. It's downhill the entire time. It's a very winding road, lots of boulders, lots of places for people to hide, and bandits would often get behind rocks and hide in little crevices, and then when somebody would come along that road, they would jump out, and they would rob them, beat them up, and leave them on the side 
side of the road. So when Jesus tells this story, everybody in their mind around them, including the expert in the law, understands the scene. They know where that road is. It's all right around where they're living. In fact, some of the people in the audience possibly have been robbed on this road before. And Jesus says that he encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, left him near death. Now, it just so happened that a priest was going down the same road. And when he saw the man, the injured man, he crossed over to the other side and he went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by at that spot, saw the injured man and crossed to the other side of the road and went on his own way. Now, we do not know why the priest and Levite passed by the injured man, and we do not need to read too much into it. Jesus doesn't tell us the motive of the priest and Levite. Jesus doesn't give us any indication as to why the priest and Levite just passed by. Jesus doesn't say why they didn't stop, and that's important too. He leaves it up to the audience's imagination. But for whatever reason, neither the priest nor the Levite stopped and helped the man. Now, <laughs> this is where it gets so good. Before we look down on the priest and Levite, before we get too judgy, I doubt that it would take us too long to find situations where we have passed by on the other side. In fact, when I choose to not get involved, I pass by on the other side. In places where I thought I couldn't do much good, so I just went on my merry way, when I didn't have time, when I had other things to do, so I just prayed someone else more experienced with more resources and more time would do something, I just passed by on the other side. Again, Jesus provides no names for the priest, no names for the Levite, just random, good, moral, hardworking people living their lives, just like the people who fill this room right now. We're just going to work, we're going to church, we're taking care of our family, we're just driving, we're just walking, we're just about our business, just going from a typical city like Jerusalem down to Jericho, just, just living our lives on our way to pay bills, on our way to the coffee shop, on our way to do all the things that we do in life, and they see someone who's hurting on the side of the road, and for whatever reason, and Jesus doesn't say why, they pass by on the other side. People like you and me, they walk on by. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say anything negative about them other than the fact that they chose to not get involved. But you can't help wonder why? Come on. I mean, why would they not stop? And the best shot we have of answering it is to ask ourselves, why don't we? Because the reasons you don't stop and the reasons I don't stop, probably the same reason they didn't stop. Let's not make it too spiritual. Let's not make them so immoral. Let's not make them so uncompassionate. Oh, well, they're just this way, but I'm not like that. But they are, listen, the same reasons we walk on by. The same reasons they walk on by. Martin Luther King Jr., reflecting on this story in a sermon that he preached, said, it's possible that these men were afraid. And so the first question that the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? And he is absolutely right. He's right because I've had that exact same thought so many different times. If, if, if I get involved, what will it mean for me? 
What will it cost me? How will I be inconvenienced? Again, the people sitting around listening to Jesus could easily identify with that thought. Both the priest and the Levite's choice to not entangle themselves in the affairs of someone else. Maybe because they were afraid bandits were still around. Maybe they didn't know what they would do if they got involved and the man was very injured and they didn't know CPR and they didn't know what to do. So they just kind of thought, you know what, I've got a lot of things going on. I'll pray that somebody else more experienced with more time, with more energy or whatever will get involved in this person's life. And they went on their way. And you've had some of the same thoughts. Come on, don't look at me like you're so spiritual. Had the same thoughts. I've had the same thoughts. It's the reason you walk by. It's the reason I walk by. We're afraid. And more than likely, the audience felt sorry for the beaten man. Jesus is building compassion within them. He's setting up this scene in a way that they feel it, they sense it. And more than likely, the audience felt the priest and the Levite should have stopped to help. More than likely, they wondered about the priest's compassion and the Levite's compassion. And then they suddenly started wondering about their own compassion. And just like many of you sitting here, you wonder about that, your own compassion, your lack of involvement. That's what Jesus is wanting in this story. And the audience expected a third person. The first person, the priest comes by and he doesn't stop. And then the second person, the Levite comes by, he doesn't stop. And they, they can kind of predict that Jesus is probably going to wind this story up by having a third person come in. And the third person is going to be a hero. The third person is going to do the right thing. And they probably think that Jesus is more than likely going to bring a farmer into it, or he's going to bring a shepherd into it, or he's going to bring a poor person into it because the well-connected priest didn't, you know, get connected. The well-established Levite religious person, he didn't, he didn't stop and, and help. So probably Jesus is is going to bring this Israelite in who doesn't have all the social connections and doesn't have all the money and doesn't have all the clout and he's going to save the day. Well, they get it partly right. A third person does show up, but parables rarely go the way you think they will go. That's what makes them so powerful. And this is what Jesus inserts into the story. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was. So folks, when you read that, we don't think much about the story. It doesn't have the punch. It doesn't have the pinch that it did to the first audience. Because when we see the word Samaritan, we think of the good Samaritan, the story. We think of Samaritan's purse, the people who reach out to people around the world. Samaritan, there's good Samaritan laws. You're supposed to stop and help people. So the Samaritan in our culture, in our day, is a person who stops, who helps, who's compassionate, who's loving. So we read that story. We think a Samaritan who was on his journey. We automatically fill in all the gaps. We already know what's going to happen in the story because we've heard it so many times, but this is the first time these people have ever heard this story. And when they heard Samaritan, their heart turned over. They felt some butterflies. Some of them felt sweat in their hands. They felt nervous because this was a turn in the story they never expected because in their mind, a Samaritan was not somebody who would ever stop and do anything good for anybody. Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine says Jesus introducing a Samaritan after the priest and Levite is equal to going from Larry and Moe to Osama bin Laden. That's the jolt the audience felt. And Jesus quickly skips over the priests and he skips over the Levite's actions and he concentrates on the actions of a Samaritan. Watch what the Samaritan does. 
But when he saw him, the Samaritan, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending him with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, you've got to feel this and see this as did the original audience, or you'll miss it. If the only sting you feel in this message today is that the Samaritan had compassion and got involved and the priest and Levite didn't have compassion, so we should be more like the Samaritan. If that's what you get out of this message today, you have missed the power of this story. There is a long and dramatic history between the Israelites and the Samaritans and all of it is not pretty and we do not have time to detail it. Just know this. The Jewish audience did not only consider the Samaritans less than them, they considered the Samaritans their enemy. They considered the Samaritans as oppressors. The best way I know to set this up is that they looked at the Samaritans similar to how we might look at the Russians right now for attacking the Ukrainians. They are the oppressors. They are the ones who bring pain. They are the ones who bring hurt. They are the ones who oppress good people. The audience would have most likely thought, you know what? Let me tell you something right now. They wouldn't have said this out loud, but they would have thought this. If I was the guy in the ditch and the only person that could come by and save me was a Samaritan, I'd just go ahead and die. Because I do not want a Samaritan saving my life. I do not want a Samaritan touching me. I do not want a Samaritan getting involved in my personal life at all. I'd rather die than let a Samaritan help me. Not just because they consider the Samaritans dirty or unclean, but because of the pain and the trauma the Samaritans had created for their people in the past. They were at odds with the Samaritans. And Jesus inserts the Samaritan as the star of the show. You got to feel that. Think of it like this. If you needed a kidney transplant and the only person compatible and willing to help you was the man who lied about you and got you fired from your job and you had a decision to make, will I carry his kidney with me the rest of my life or will I wait? Or, or maybe the woman who had an affair with your husband and wrecked your home and she's the only one who can save your life. What would you do? Or a serial drunk driver or a rapist or a well-known drug lord an enemy of your family and your culture and your life. That's what it sounded like and that's what it felt like to the original audience. And some of you would just say, you know what, I'd rather just die. I don't want to carry that man's kidney inside of me. I do not want that woman responsible for saving my life. Forget it. I tap out. I'm done. I don't want anything to do with those people. In a subversive way, Jesus is saying through this story that the cycle of hatred and violence and enemies can be broken, but you must be willing to accept help from the very people you hate. It is possible that the people who want to kill you are the same people in the unique position to save you. What are you going to do about that? Man. The Samaritan goes on. The next day, he took two full days worth of wages and gave it, them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. Man, this Samaritan goes above and beyond to love the man in the ditch 
It's not enough to help him one time and feel good about himself. This was ongoing care, not only today, but take care of him tomorrow, take care of him next week. And when I come back around, whatever is owed you, I will cover it all. I will pay for it all. And the audience was emotionally and spiritually shaken. They did not expect a Samaritan to be the one who comes through with love and grace and compassion. They were deeply challenged. Jesus paints a complex and nuanced picture of what it means to love your neighbor and what it means to receive love from people you don't even like. And this story is powerful and it's radically inclusive. And to their shock, it is carried out by someone they consider an enemy, someone they would never want in their homes, they would never want sitting around their dinner tables, and that's the very one Jesus puts at the center of everything and says, this person represents God, your father, more than the priest and more than the Levite. And when Jesus is finished with this story, I think it's dead silent. I think it is dead silent. And the lawyer doesn't even know what to say. He asked Jesus a question and he did not expect that answer. And then Jesus breaks the silence with back-to-back questions. Jesus looks at the expert in the law and says, let me ask you a question now. What do you think? What do you think about my story? What do you think about what just happened? Let me ask you a question. Which one of these three was a neighbor? to the man who encountered thieves. Now let's step back again. The lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But Jesus is more interested in what is a neighbor? Now, let's get down to where we live, okay? Let's go back to the Martin Luther King quote. He says at the beginning that if possible, It's possible these men were afraid. I talked to you about that. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? He then goes on to say this. The good Samaritan came by and reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? Two different ways of living. What will happen to me if I get involved? Versus if I don't get involved, what will happen to him? And then King went on to give a specific example out of his generation, out of his day, what was going on in his world at the time. And he took all that he said and he applied it to one specific situation. And he said, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? And the reason I emphasize this specific example from MLK is because if we're not careful, We're going to walk out of here today and we're going to think, well, I love all people, so I'm pretty good. And folks, I hear it all the time. As a pastor, this is is what I hear often from people. I see it on social media. I hear it in conversations, in counseling sessions, whatever. Well, I, I, I love all people, Scott. I love all people. I don't hate anyone. I mean, I don't see color or size or socioeconomic standings. You know what? I don't care who you are. I have black friends. I have white friends. I have Hispanic friends. I mean, if you're honest and hardworking and you don't hurt anybody, I don't care what you do. 
You live your life, I'll live mine, and we'll get along just fine. But I don't hate anybody. But do you notice the subtle boundaries in place? If you're honest. Well, what if they aren't honest? Well, if you're hardworking, well, who defines hardworking? Well, if you're a good person, well, who defines good? And whose version of good are we going with? If you don't hurt anybody, well, how do we define hurt? Well, we'll get along just fine. Well, what if we don't get along just fine? See, that's the punch of this parable. That's what you have to feel and see. Back to Martin Luther Jr.'s quote, if I do not help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? He is referring to a specific tension needing relief in his society at that time. He mentions a specific group of people who were being marginalized, treated unfairly. And he said, if I don't do something about that, if I don't get involved in that, what will happen to them? That's what the Good Samaritan did. He got involved in a specific situation, regardless of the cost to him, regardless of what the Jewish people would say, regardless of the fallout. And if we're not careful, we Christians will leave this place today and we will think, well, basically what Scott was saying is that if I'm ever in a situation when someone is hurting and in front of me, then I'll be like the Good Samaritan and I'll do what Jesus says and I will help them and I won't ignore them like the priest and the Levite and off we will go to lunch and little or nothing will change in our lives. Yet we walk by people hurting and do nothing constantly. I'm not talking about the people standing on the street corners with signs. I don't mean food lines. I'm not talking about mission trips to other countries. Those are obvious And we do good with those things, you know? We do good with those things. I mean, we don't see the sanitation workers of our day. The pawns of politics, we miss them. We walk by people working their behinds off all week trying to raise a family on minimum wage, barely able to make ends meet, and we make it political and therefore do nothing. We walk on by. We walk by kids without fathers, mothers without money to pay rent, people without medical care, people without transportation, without insurance, without education, without houses, without retirement, without friends, without mental health resources, kids in foster care, wealthy people wasting money, wasting food, wasting education, on and on. And we walk on by because we've got places to go and things to do. And we judge the priest and the Levite in the story and make ourselves feel good. Let's not act super spilled. Don't look at me like, well, I don't know who you're talking about because I'm not like that. Come on. Let's don't act like we're not like the priest and the Levite. We are. Remember the question from Jesus, who was the neighbor? Not who are my neighbors, but, but what's a neighbor? Who, who was the neighbor in this story? And listen to how the legal expert responds to Jesus' question. Then the legal expert said, um, the one. 
He couldn't even say Samaritan. He just said, the one who demonstrated mercy. Hey, so tell me, which one? Was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan that was the best neighbor? Well, it's, it's, it's the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. He couldn't even say who it was. You see, <laughs> Jesus says at the end of that, go and do likewise. And he stops. That's the entire story. He just stops right there. Go and do likewise. Folks, you've got to feel these words of Jesus the way it felt to that lawyer. Jesus is saying to him, go and be like the Samaritan. Go and imitate your enemy. Go follow the example of the person you detest. Become like the one you don't even like. The guy you can't even say his name. You can't even mention who he is. Go and be like him. Because if you really want the punch of this story, the way it really felt and sounded when he first told it, Jesus is emphasizing here right behaviors over right beliefs. Because folks, if you are being treated unfairly, if you are hurting, if you are sick, if you are being abused, if you are threatened, if you are mistreated, if you are hungry, if you are homeless, if a person gets involved to help you in your situation, do you care what the person believes? If the person gives you food, do you care which church he attended this past Sunday or even if she went to church? If you're hungry and she has soup, do you ask, where do you go to church before I eat the soup? That's what Jesus is emphasizing. He's blowing all their minds. Folks, I'm going I'm to modernize this story. I'm going to flip it all upside down. I'm going to mess everything up for you. And then we're going to close. And that, that's going to be fun. Won't, it? Won't that be fun? I love to do that. I love to mess everything up in your world. Just flip everything upside down and we'll just walk out. Just walk out. Okay? I'm going to do my best to just take that parable and apply it in our world and feel it the way they felt it. Okay? Here it is. Late one night, It's raining. And your car breaks down on the side of the road and you and your two small kids are stranded. You have no cell service. You're stressed. You're worried. You try and get the attention of a car passing because if they stop, then maybe you, know, you can use their cell phone to call for help. And fortunately, a car slows down and your heart is like, yes, thank you, God. And before it even gets close enough that you can see the driver, you happen to notice a Bible on the dashboard and a Forest Park decal in the window. And you're like, yes, this is awesome. And you hear worship music coming from the car. It's loud enough that you can hear the worship music playing. And it's one of your favorite songs, ones that we sing on Sunday morning a lot. And you're like, this person probably goes to my church. I might even recognize them when I see them. But the car slows down and takes a good look and then drives on by. You can't believe it. I mean, you're soaking wet, your kids are crying in the backseat of your car. It's obvious you're stranded and you need help. Then you see another car slowing down and again, you're relieved. You say, well, definitely now I'll get some help. And it's a local pastor. And you've 
you've been to his church, you've heard him preach, and he does a really good job, and he pulls over, and he rolls his window down, and you think, thank God. And you say, hey, I just need to use your cell phone for just a minute. I'm going to call a friend and help me, you know, get, get, my, get, get us taken home and all that. And he responds, I am so sorry. My cell phone is dead right now, and I'd be happy to take you somewhere, but I'm already running late to a special service. I'm the speaker tonight. But as soon as I get to where I'm going, I'll plug my cell phone in. And as soon as it gets enough power, I'll call you back and we'll get you some help, okay? And in the meantime, I'll be praying for you. Just get back in your car, stay dry. Somebody will get here a little bit later to help you. And again, you're shocked. But you try to understand his schedule and you try not to make it all about you. About 15 minutes later, you're shivering cold. Your kids cannot be consoled. And another car pulls over and you don't know these people. And it's obvious that they're not from around here. Based on what you've seen on TV and online, you're confident the man and woman are Muslims. And the men ask you in broken English, what's wrong? And you explain that you're a little afraid. And he doesn't ask any more questions. He just gets out and gets out in the pouring rain and helps get your kids into his car. And when you get inside, you push over a few copies of the Koran and some reading material. Three small children are in the back seat and they're very quiet when you get in because they seem kind of scared of you. There's music playing and you can't understand any of the lyrics and the music sounds strange. The man is slow getting back inside the car and you're a little nervous, but eventually he gets in and begins to drive slowly and you feel a little tug on the back of his car and you realize that he's towing your car. And he asks you where he should take it. And you say, well, there's a garage close by my house. If you don't mind dropping it off, I can get it fixed next week. And he takes you to the garage. He gets back out in the rain. He unhooks your car. And then he asks where you live. And you tell him and he takes you home. And when you arrive, his wife reaches inside her bag and pulls out enough money to take care of your car repairs and enough to buy the kids some toys for their stressful evening. She then gives you some food. And you've never had this kind of food before. It smells different and... Your kids are so hungry, though, they just begin to eat it quickly. And then he prays to Allah for protection and peace for your journey. And when you get out, he gets out and puts a, uh, pulls out an umbrella and walks you and your children to the front door. And once you're inside, he blesses you in the name of Allah and his family drives away. And as soon as you close the door to your warm and dry house, your phone rings. And it's the pastor and he says, hey, I, I just got finished with what I'm doing, and I got some cell service now, and if you'd like me to get somebody there to help pick you up, I'll, I'll do what I can. And you say, no, thank you. Uh, somebody already helped. And he says, oh, I'm so glad, because I was praying, you know, God is good. And you think, God sure is. I just don't know which one. Now, go follow the Muslim. That's a little bit of how it sounded. See, Jesus ends the story by saying to the lawyer, go and do likewise. Go be like the Samaritan. And that's exactly how I want to end today. Go and do. Love people through actions, not words. Actions. Don't worry about who they are. Don't stress over what they believe. Don't concern yourself with their culture, their politics, or religion, or sexual choices. Love them. And not with just words. 
We modern Christians are infamous for loving people with our words, and words are cheap, and they're easy. It's all well and good, but they would prefer for you to love them with your money, love them with your time, love them with your social media posts, love them with getting involved, love them by defending them, love them by standing up for them, love them by putting in some skin, your skin, in the game of life. Go and do. Go and do. Go and do. Because I assure you, some prostitutes and porn stars are closer to God's kingdom than many American Christians. And some addicts and atheists understand loving others much better than I do. And Samaritans and Muslims look more like Jesus than we do. Go and be like them. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, the story speaks to us in a way that is just, it's unexplainable. It's so deep. When you finish telling that story, I think everyone was just quiet like we are here today. Because we're not sure what to do. We're not sure how to do. We're, it's flipping things up and we're reevaluating and looking and realizing that maybe we're not as inclusive and loving and gracious as we thought. Maybe there's some of us sitting in this room that are gracious and loving and inclusive and we felt guilty for it. Oh God, teach us. Teach us what it means to think of the other person first. Teach us what it means to value loving others in a way they can feel and see. Teach us what it means to sometimes follow the Samaritans of our life because they understand love better than some of the people at church. Teach us to find models of love everywhere. And when we see love, imitate it. When we see, we see grace, imitate it. No matter where the example is, no matter who is the example, let's value love and grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and inclusivity above and beyond, dotting all the, 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 the sentences and crossing all the T's and making sure we have all our theology exactly right. God, may we love people and put it above everything else. Teach us what that means and let the power of this parable change us. We need to learn. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your time and your attention today. Go and do. Have a good day.